0: When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, who was his master's highly, valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you come and do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent his friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am under authority and soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow a large crowd from the town was with her when he saw the lord when the lord saw her his heart went out to her don't cry then he went up and touched the bier and they were carrying him on and the bier stood still he said young man i say to you get up the dead man sat up and began to walk and jesus gave him back to his mother they were all filled with awe and praised god a great prophet has appeared among us they said God has come to help his people. This news is about Jesus. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Thank you,
1: Naomi, and good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm the, uh, the other Johnny, um, who's also a pastor of the church, and it's great to, uh, great to have lots of familiar faces and friends, and, um, and also some, some guests and visitors with us. So, let me welcome you, and let's just pray before we before we look at uh, Luke seven together. Lord, we we acknowledge that this is your word that we've just uh, that Naomi's just read and we have heard, and we pray that you would help us to receive it as the words of God to us, as words of life and truth. Spirit, would you work powerfully in this room, uh, in me, in each of our hearts and minds today? to bring to bear this truth, that it may be living and active in our lives, we pray. Amen. Now, I wonder what you think um, great faith is. What, what does great faith look like? Because this story in Luke is a story of, of great faith. Did you see that? Jesus says that, uh, uh, that he finds great faith in the centurion in, uh, in verse 9. And maybe you're here today and you think, that's what I'm looking for. That's, that's kind of why I'm interested in coming to church, because I'm looking for this sense of, uh, of faith. And sometimes people say, don't they? I don't know if they've ever said it to you. I wish I had your faith. And the idea is that, that faith is this virtue that, that some people have, and, and, and we sometimes see it in others, and they say, actually, I'd, I'd like some more of that myself. So maybe some of you, that's why you, why you land in church this morning. Maybe some, some others... Who've maybe been Christians for a while, you think this morning, I wouldn't describe my faith as particularly great in any way today. Maybe you feel that you've lost your faith. You you wonder if you'll ever recover it. Some some may be feeling excited uh, by faith at the moment, trusting Jesus, and this morning just ready and eager to, to, to know more of him possibly some of us, certainly people around us in the world think faith is a bit silly. It's something that's not based on facts. It's just something that makes people feel good. So, you know, if it works for you, that's fine, but it's not for me. Well, today we're exploring what great faith looks like and how all of us can have great faith and have it grow in us. You see, great faith is less about us and more about Jesus, who he is and what he does. As Johnny said, we're what the reading is from, from uh, the book of Luke, and, and Luke is a storyteller who is a Greek doctor, and he's written down this story, this orderly account, he says, of Jesus' life. He's investigated and asked eyewitnesses, and he's written it down so that we, the reader, may have faith, have, may have a sure and certain faith in Jesus. Luke wants us to know the certainty of Jesus, who fulfills everything, who delivers on all um, we could ever hope for in our lives. And that's why he's written this story for us. And and, and admittedly, what we read today, we should acknowledge straight away, is pretty remarkable, isn't it? There's this miracle of this instantaneous healing of, of, of this man from a distance, which is followed and outdone by this raising of this young man from dead in the middle of the day in front of a packed crowds in a busy town. That's not your everyday events and your everyday occurrence, is it? We need to remember this is not myth, but this is history. It's not myth, but it's history. It's real people, real places, real time. You could get on a plane, and in a few hours, you could be in in these towns and in these places and visit them. And Luke, who writes this, and others at the time are well aware that this kind of stuff does not usually happen. Greeks, Luke is a Greek. Greeks are famous for their reason and their evidence, aren't they? And that's why Luke has written this stuff down, because it is out of the ordinary. But as with all of Jesus' miracles, we need to see that they, they point beyond themselves. So rather than just, just looking and seeing the miracles, we need to see through them like a window to, to see what they show us about Jesus and about the world uh, and about us. It's really interesting, actually, when you think about what actually happens in what we've just read, how amazing and remarkable it is. How little attention Luke actually gives to the prestige moments of the two miracles. Actually, so much of the story, so much of the narrative is focusing on this centurion and this, this widow. And so we're going to tap into their experience and, and follow Luke's lead there. This, this is how the Bible describes faith uh, more generally elsewhere in Hebrews. Faith is confidence. We wouldn't often say that, would we? But faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. It's confidence in what we hope for in in, in a future that is coming. And it's being sure, being sure about things that we do not see. And, And you see, so often faith looks like a deep assurance of who Christ is and what he's doing, even though the stuff we can see around us in life, everything that's so evident to us, looks like it's not going to plan. Looks like it's not going, it looks like it's falling apart. Everything we can see looks a mess. And faith amidst that is an assurance. Who Christ is and what he's doing. And, and today we're picking up the threads that we've seen throughout uh, the book of Luke, these threads of, of Jesus' great authority and his radical compassion. Uh, and Luke's kind of pulled and weaved them through the story so far. And they're here again in, in, in this text. And in these stories, we see how the authority and the compassion of Jesus lead us to faith and a more confident faith in him. How his, how his authority and his compassion give us hope for the future. How his authority and his compassion give us an assurance of his unseen work in the present. And that is what I think what you might call great faith. It won't feel like great faith. It won't feel like you're flying high. Often it will look very ordinary on the surface. But that is what I think we see is is great faith. So here's the first thing. In the story of the centurion, uh, this is the main idea. Jesus has great authority. So we approach him with with humble faith, or if, if like me, it's easier, just fewer words. Authority equals humility. Jesus' authority equals our humility. We're in the middle of this ministry tour of Jesus around north northern parts of Israel that Luke's t- taken us through through chapters four through nine. And Jesus, last week, we just finished this big sermon that we've been in for a long time, and he heads to this town of Capernaum, and and he's been there before. Uh, we were back there in chapter 4, and when he was there before, the crowds just flocked to him. And they queued up uh, that down the road outside where he was for hours, and the people here queuing up were those who had sicknesses and illnesses and, and were oppressed by demons, and they came to Jesus to be healed and to be set free and to be liberated. So Jesus got a bit of a name in this place. And in this town, there's a Roman centurion who lives there. He's the, the Roman army officer who commands over 100 soldiers. Now, he's in Capernaum in the same way that Russian commanders are in eastern Ukraine today. Okay, He's there as, as, as an occupier. This is the home of the Jews, but the great Roman Empire occupies and rules, and the centurion is the representative of the, of the empire there, of this foreign superpower that's ruling over the people. So you, you've got to see that he's not going to be the most popular guy in town, you would think. I mean, he's doing all right for himself. He's making his way in, 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 in the Roman army, up, up the ranks. But, but he knows he's an outsider as far as the Jews and their religion are concerned. And he's not one of God's chosen people. In fact, he's the enemy at this time of God's chosen people. And this centurion has, has a problem. He is most reliable and his most uh, highly valued employee is properly ill. And, and, and he's so ill uh, that he's basically on his deathbed. And he's worried that he's going to lose him. And he can't imagine that because he relies on him. He's his most valuable employee. He, he, he keeps things together. It seems that they've grown a real uh, affection and friendship together in, in their working life over the years. And, and although the centurion has not uh, met Jesus, he's heard what others have said about him. He's been a talk of the town since that last visit. And so the centurion makes a plan, right? I'm going to grab the situation by the scruff of the neck. I'm going to send local Jewish religious leaders to Jesus to ask him to come and heal. My servant. That's interesting, isn't it? Why does he send the local Jewish leaders, and why do they go? Given he's this Roman occupier in the uh, in, in in a foreign land, it's like Ukrainians today running around to help a Russian commander w- with their needs. It just seems strange, doesn't it? But but Luke tells us why the Jewish elders gladly go and do his bidding because, as far as they're concerned, they found a good Roman in the ranks. Verse five, he's sympathetic to them. He's um, to the Jews. He's sympathetic to their nation and their religion. And he's even built a local synagogue for them out of his own pocket. So he seems to care greatly about them, and and they seem to to like him. So, So the Jewish leaders go, and they persuade Jesus, look, this man deserves Jesus. He deserves for you to come and help him. He's not one of us, but he's for us. We want to keep him on side. And Jesus, will you come and help him for us? They plead earnestly with him. It seems like this, this centurion is, is actually genuinely a pre- pretty decent guy. He's generous to the Jews. He cares deeply for his servant. He's going above and beyond to get the help here. But You see, these religious leaders, they have this very, this very transactional way of how they relate to God. They're always doing a bargain. God, I'll do this for you and you do that for me. Give and take. God, if I serve you, then surely you owe me and you're going to bless me and you're going to bring good things into my life. This this guy's a good guy. He's done some good stuff. He's done some good stuff around the synagogue. Surely you owe him, Jesus. If I serve you, God, then you'll do good for me. And, And then the flip side of when you have that kind of bargaining and that kind of give and take thing with God is that when God doesn't give you what you want, you get really frustrated with him. When life's not going the way you'd like it to, you get really annoyed and angry. God, I've held up my side of the bargain. What about yours? I honoured you in doing the hard thing, where you asked me. But God, you haven't made my life any easier, have you? I say I serve faithfully in church, but my marriage is still a mess. God, I shared my faith with others. I took a risk on my reputation, and my health is still deteriorating. Here, is that the way of life and of faith? Well, no, it's not. Just to be clear, and it's the the non-religious guy, the outsider, who gets it. This centurion, you see, the elders think he deserves Jesus' help, but the centurion does not share the same assessment. Look at verse 6. He sent them to go to Jesus, and then before they've come back, he changes his mind. He thinks, what have I done? And he sends some friends with this message to Jesus. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. See, we, we now see why he sent the Jewish leaders. He didn't think of himself as worthy to even approach Jesus she thought well I, I better send his his own people and maybe he'll listen to them maybe they will maybe he'll be inclined to to hear them see this is a man of great authority this is a man of great power this is a hardened military man and yet he's humbled before Jesus that he's never even met he's humbled before him he's heard of him he's heard what people have said about him he says i'm not worthy I don't deserve even to approach this man. Actually, when he sends his friends, they call him Lord on on his behalf. It's a mark of respect and acknowledgement that, Jesus, you're greater than me. You're above me, and and I owe some allegiance to you. He knows he's not deserving. And he doesn't know this out of a place of, like, self-loathing or self-hatred or introspection. No, this is a humility that is born of faith. So he means you're born of faith. So actually, he goes on in verse 7. But but say the word, Lord, and my servant will be healed. For I know how authority works. When you have authority over something, you speak and it happens. Your word is powerful. If you have authority, you speak and it happens. And he's saying, Jesus, I, I, I know and I believe that you have authority over the sickness. So you say the word and the sickness is gone. My servant will be healed. See, here the centurion gets it so right. Faith is not a bargaining tool with God. It's not us deserving something. It's not impressing God enough so he owes you, developing enough virtue or goodness so God gives you something. No, this centurion, his faith is recognizing the witness of others. What others have said about Jesus as legit acting on that in your own life uh, 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 and letting the belief go to work in your own life and acting it out in the way that he approaches Jesus, acknowledging Jesus' authority and in that, confessing his own unworthiness. That is what faith is. And this kind of humble faith, this kind of bold faith, what it does is it brings before Jesus your needs and your troubles and your desires and, and you seek his gracious work in them. Just so bringing stuff to Jesus, but also I think what we see in the centurion is that it's trusting Jesus beyond what He does in this particular situation. I didn't feel like the centurion. This is a test for Jesus. Jesus, you want my faith? You want my belief? You want my trust? Then you have got to pass this test. You got to, you got to, you got to do this. If you heal my servant, then I'm good with you, Jesus. If you don't heal my servant, I'm done with you, Jesus. I get the impression that the centurion had a faith that went deeper than his current circumstances. A faith that brought his circumstances to Jesus and yet a faith that trusted Jesus beyond what he might do in this particular situation. But of course, Jesus is very gracious here and he does—he heals his servant from a distance. The centurion's friends return home and find the servant well again. Now, as, as amazing as this miracle is, As I said before, the focus here is less on the miracle itself and more on the relationship of Jesus and the centurion. And verse 9 is key for that, that Jesus is amazed at what he finds is such great faith in this man. Such great faith that he doesn't find amongst his own people. In fact, in the stories of Jesus' life, there's one other time where Jesus is amazed in the same way. And we read him being amazed like this. And that is that the lack of faith amongst his own people. In his hometown. But this outsider's faith, this person who you wouldn't expect to get it, this outsider's expectancy and humility causes Jesus to marvel. Not even amongst the people of God has Jesus encountered faith like this. And so our main life lesson from this story is that it clarifies for us the kind of faith that brings us to Jesus. And it's not what we think of. When people talk about faith today, so often they, they, they think of it as blind and unthinking belief in spite of all reasonable evidence. They think of it as a very private thing. And it's subjective and it has no impact on on, on, on life uh, really beyond just kind of making you feel a bit better inside. People think of it as something that's private and so it has no Relation to others, or how you treat or interact with others, or what you think of others. It's okay for you to have faith as long as it doesn't uh, spill out in any way. Uh, Or others, uh, other times people would say, actually, faith just makes people really proud and, and look down at other people. Or in every one of those ways, the centurion demonstrates, it's actually the complete opposite of what people think. It's built not necessarily on what we personally see, but it's built on the reliable witness of others what others have seen and have witnessed to. And for us, that's what's recorded in the Bible, these, these eyewitness testimonies of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And also our faith is built by the, by the stories and the testimonies of others around us in the church as, 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 as we see and they share with us what Jesus is doing in their lives. Our faith doesn't stay private. It doesn't stay merely just personal and, and cloistered in a small corner of life. But the centurion shows us that faith is something that goes to work in life. It's not just like a special interest or a hobby that's one stream of life, but it changes all of life and is acted on and reshapes life in public as well as in private. He shows us that faith is is an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority and his power. And so it keeps us humble and it keeps us hopeful. Knowing that if I get in on this, then anyone can get in on this because it's what Jesus gives to us. This is is the example to us in the centurion of a great faith. If we recognize Jesus' great authority, then we approach him with this humble and this bold and this expectant faith, and it goes to work in our lives. And then we continue to approach him, we continue to think of him like that. Great faith is less about how great we are. It's less about how great our current circumstances are. And it's all about how great Jesus is. That's what great faith is. Great faith is seeing how great He is, and all surpassing greatness in Jesus. So that's authority equals humility. And and and, and this second story of this uh, this uh, dead man in the town of Nain gives us this. Jesus is full of compassion, so we receive from Him great. Comfort. And here you could just say, Compassion, the compassion of Jesus equals comfort for us. You see, faith is, if you like, all about how we approach Jesus, but this second story is about his approach to us. We read that soon after he moves to another local town called Nain, uh, and the disciples and the large crowd are following. Uh, And here Jesus goes one better. He doesn't just heal a sick person, but he actually raises Someone from the dead. And there's similarities and differences between these two stories. The similarity, uh, the main similarity is that we've got another outsider uh, in, a, in a totally different way, but someone who you could say is easily left behind and the bottom of the pile uh, and people maybe wouldn't care for. But the difference is that the centurion, what he did when he realized he was an outsider and needed some help, is he moved towards Jesus, didn't he? And he kind of he took hold of the situation and went forward and had, had, had faith. Jesus to bring healing. But but here is this poor grieving widow and she is completely passive in this story. She's just totally heartbroken and and consumed by her own grief. She's experienced this calamity. She's lost her husband and now she's lost her only son. And and that in a day and an age that left a a widower without any uh, males in her family to look after her with a very bleak future and could so easily become destitute. But again, as Luke retells the story of what happened, the focus is less on the miracle at the heart of it, although it's obviously significant, but it's on this poor widow. And our attention is drawn to some of these subtle but human aspects at the heart of this story. See, there's no sign that she knows anything of Jesus. There's no sign that she's expecting him to even be there, let alone to notice her and her particular needs. But as we read, we notice that Jesus notices her. He sees her. He sees her needs, her pain, and her suffering, and he acts in an absolutely remarkable way to give her immeasurably more than she could ever ask or imagine according to his power. See how very pub- public it is. It's like, um, it's like being by the bull in the middle of the bull ring on a Saturday afternoon where it's just absolutely heaving, people going in every direction. Okay? The town gate is one of the busiest places in town. And Jesus is coming into the town with this large crowd of, uh, of his disciples and, and he's probably quite excited followers wondering what he's going to do next. And coming out of town from the other direction, it is this other large crowd, but they're not so excited, are they? This is a funeral procession. Uh, And the pallbearers are carrying this open coffin, and and the mourners are following along. Now, it's helpful for us to realize this is just quite different to how we would often do our funerals in in this country nowadays. Today, we show respect by wearing dark clothes and and quiet whispers and silent tears, don't we? And that's a mark of respect as we grieve. But back then, it was a great noise and a great commotion of grief over the loved one that was the show of respect. So, so the family of a loved one would hire musicians to play a dirge and, and you could hire these professional wailers to, to kind of wail these, these really sad songs and make a great noise. You put your, your grief and your pain on display for all to see and that's how you show your respect for the loved one that you've lost. And so with that in mind, verse 13 is, is really key for us. When the Lord saw her, And obviously he saw her grief and her pain It was so on display. His heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. His heart went out to her. He he had compassion on her, a deep stirring of his heart that drew him toward her in in, in love that that pulled him near out of kindness and love and, and compassion. The people of the town had come alongside her in her grief. There, there's a great crowd of them with her in, 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 at, the, at this funeral, and they're showing great love there. But they couldn't do anything about this situation for her. But as Jesus moves towards her, he can. And he says, don't cry. Don't cry. If you think about it, that's pretty much the most mean thing you could say to a grieving mother by her dead son. Unless you're about to do what Jesus is going to do. Her son is very dead. Everyone knows it. They've all rocked up to the funeral. Everyone can see it. He's been carried on this open coffin through the streets. And yet, with a touch and a word in front of this massive crowd and, and with this mother standing right there. The one whose voice is all authority and all compassion. He says to him, young man, get up. And the young man gets up out of death in an instant. And, and he sits up and he begins to talk. And it's almost as if for him nothing happened. He just had an afternoon nap. It's absolutely amazing. If, if the healing of the centurion servant was it was impressive, then like this is next level stuff, right? You might be tempted to think, well, back then people were gullible, weren't they? Maybe it was some kind of magic trick or something. Easily taken in. As I said before, they know that people are not raised from the dead. Luke knows that as a Greek doctor. That's why it's so newsworthy and astounding. Think of the number of witnesses that are in this busy scene in the middle of the day in, uh, in the busiest place in town. Luke was writing this just 25 years later. Loads of them had still been around and still living. They could have corrected the record so easily. And yet they didn't and they couldn't. But see just how Jesus concludes this amazing event. Verse 50. I just love this line. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. When we studied this as, as a team together this week, someone said that it's as if Jesus brings two people back to life here. This woman was pretty much as good as dead in, in that culture, in that society, in that day. Her, her life was just going to be really, really hard And so now she's been given new life too. Her boy's back, her her, her future's back, her security, her comfort uh, and her hope. Such a better outlook. You see, Jesus not only has great authority, but he's full of deep compassion. And so this woman experiences this great comfort and I guess this deep hope from encountering him. She did nothing to look for this. She did nothing to ask for this. Just kind of came and just fell into her lap. She didn't take any initiative to seek it out. And Jesus came to her. His heart went out to her. He drew near to her in her grief and her pain. He was moved and he brought her great comfort out of his compassion. He gave her what she didn't even know she could have. What she could get. Now, we don't actually really know how she responds, but we do know how the crowds respond. They are filled with awe. And they praise God. There's this great prophet that has come to us. God has come to his people. And and, and the word about Jesus continues to spread. It's the question I want want us to think about to, to close. What about us? What about you? How do you respond to Jesus this morning? I reckon some of us will be thinking this. If Jesus cares so much, Johnny, if he's got all the compassion you're trying to tell us he has, if Jesus is as powerful as you're saying this shows us, if he has this kind of authority, then why is he not doing something about the situation that I'm in? Why is he not stepping in here for me? I mean, I don't know everyone's situation. You can fill in the blank for you. You you might say, why is he not healing me of, of this chronic or this terminal illness? Why is he not blessing us with kids? Why is he not giving me a wife? Why is he not giving me the job I want? Why is he not giving me the ministry that I so long for? Why is he not relieving my mental health struggles? Why is he not giving me the financial security that I feel I need? Why is he not giving me the church that I want? Why is he not giving me the friends I so desire? We could go on and on and on, each of us, I'm sure. It's all right for the centurion and the widow. They got it all, didn't they? It's a nice story for them. What about me? What's Jesus doing? For me. Listen, if you're not thinking like that today, then I think there'll be times in life, many times in life, when you will be, you'll be thinking and feeling those things if you're honest with yourself. It's much easier, isn't it, to have great faith when things are going well. When when just blessings are rolling into life. But What about when it's falling apart? What do these stories have for us when we have to walk through various difficult situations that are unresolved, Unchanging, weeks into months into years, and and we're still walking through. Well, I've, I've been wondering this week, why Luke put these two stories next to each other? They didn't happen next to each other. They weren't in the same place. He's placed them together in his orderly account. And I think this is the reason why. You see, what the widow got and what her son got in an instant as Jesus brought new life into that situation, we also get as Christians. But we get it not in an instant, but stretched out over a lifetime. See, so see, this boy's restoration is, is is a is a picture for us uh, of, of our of our resurrection and our new life in Christ. It's a picture of what is true for us as Christians, of being born again, and God restoring all things in our lives, including our relationships with one another, as we see beautifully in this mother and son. And, and that new life, and that new life that God brings into us by his spirit. We enjoy now, spiritually, right away. And we will enjoy it in the fullness physically in the life to come. But our experience of being raised to life is split over the time frame of this lifetime. It's not kind of an all-in-one deal. It's a, it's, we've got it now, yes, but there's more to come. And so like her, we do and we will receive immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to the power of God. And we will get that without even looking for it, without even knowing what to ask for. But we don't get it right away and we don't get it in an instant. We experience in part now what one day we experience in full in Christ. We're raised and not yet raised. We're healed and not yet fully healed. And so while we wait for Jesus to wipe every tear from our eye, while we wait for him to say once and for all with his powerful and his compassionate voice, behold, I'm making all things new. While we wait for him to deliver on his promise that there'll be no more death, there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no more crying, and there'll be no more pain while we wait for that day when we share in the widow's experience of joy and restoration, when the, the day when the weight of glory that we experience will make all of the troubles of life seem light and momentary in comparison, while we wait for that day, I think we're called to be like the centurion, to share his great faith and his great hope in Jesus. Not because we're great, not because our situation is great, But because we see and we believe and we know Jesus is great. And so we're humble before him. And so we trust him. And so we even love him amidst the brokenness and the pain of unresolved issues and struggles. Even if he seems distant and far off. Listen, Jesus has proved his great compassion and love for you by going down into death on the cross for you. Jesus has guaranteed his power and his authority to deliver on his promise by rising up from the dead and ascending to heaven. That resurrection assures you of your own resurrection too. And if he did that for you, and if he did that in time and in space and in history, how will he not graciously give you all things? Surely anything and everything short of death is covered for you if you're a Christian. This is faith in the fire that Christ died and he now lives to bring me into everlasting life. Not only can he do it, but he delights to do it. He wants to do it. And I'm safe in his hands. And I can trust him. Can you believe that this morning? Can you believe it? Not just when everything is fine and good and as you hoped, but even more so when it's maybe still a mess right now. Can you believe it? For he has done it and he will do it. Let us pray. Jesus, you are, you're full of such power and authority over illness and sickness and and even death, which assures us of your power over all things. And yet your your love and your compassion and your gentleness just astounds us. Thank you that your heart goes out to us as your people, as people you have made in your image to know and love you. And doubly so to those of us who are yours. Lord, we we thank you for your heart that is for us. We thank you for what you have done to save us and to rescue us. Lord, it is complex for us as we live in the mess of the world right now. And we, we know we hold on to these things. And yet, Lord, you know how life can be hard and confusing for us. Would you help us to have this kind of great faith that maybe doesn't look great on the surface, but it looks very ordinary. But it keeps looking to you, keeps trusting you, keeps believing you in thick and thin. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when that kind of faith will be vindicated and will be shown to be worthwhile and will be shown and proved to be right. Keep us until you come. And we look forward to what you will bring when you come back and the joy and the life and the comfort that will be ours. Make us confident of these things and give us the assurance of them that we need today, we pray. Amen.